Hello, Charlie Gladstone here, and welcome to episode six of my Mavericks podcast. Um, thank you so, so much for joining me. When I started this, I actually had absolutely um, no idea that anyone would really want to listen to it. And it's just amazing that so many people have listened to it. I can't believe how many thousands of people have downloaded it. And that makes it incredibly worthwhile for me. I like doing it anyway, but that really makes it worthwhile. So thank you very much. Um, what's been amazing is I, I do like looking at the stats on the podcast. And um, I've been astonished by some of the places that people are listening to it in. I seem to have been strangely popular in Colombia, uh, which is a place that I particularly love although I haven't been there for a long time. So um, if that's you in Colombia and your friends, thank you and hello. Today's talk is with novelist, playwright and founder of the Fun Palace concept, Stella Duffy. Stella um, is a friend of mine. She's written 15 books, something like 10 plays, endless short stories. And uh, we met on a beautiful Sunday evening at Gladstone's Library in North Wales. Um, Stella talks about the library a bit in the podcast. It's an amazing place really, which was founded by William Gladstone, the Prime Minister, and is Britain's only residential library and Britain's only prime ministerial library. It's really used a lot by people who just want time away from the uh, rush of the modern world, but also a great deal by writers. Much to our amazement, it was voted last year by readers of The Guardian as the best wellness retreat in Britain. And um, recently it also won a similar award in the same paper as one of the 10 coolest B&Bs in Britain. Um, it's a very special place. Anyway, um, this is me speaking to Stella Duffy OBE, no less. And um, I very much hope that you enjoy it. So I think without much ado, Let's move on to the podcast. You, in many ways, you attribute your um, success, your professional success to staying at school as well as being sort of educated by that yeah, family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think, I mean, I remember about six or seven years ago, David Cameron said a thing about the aspirational working class. And he was talking about money. And, you know, my family were aspirational working class. They, it wasn't about money. It was never about money. It was about opportunity. And he was saying people, you know, working class people need the opportunity to buy their house and earn lots of money. And I was like, no, it was never that. It was aspiration for your children and maybe their children to have more chances than you did. Yes. Mum got into the grammar school, but they couldn't afford the uniform for her, so she couldn't go. You know, it's things like that. So it was the the opportunity to have the aspiration to be educated, yeah. essentially for education's sake, which is a wonderful sake. Well, exactly, and the and for education's sake, in order for it to have opportunity. However, that said, my dad, my my mum was absolutely all about education for education's sake. As I said, they both had to leave school at fourteen. They were both the oldest of their families, and it was depression because they were born in twenty one, so there was a lot of poverty. Um, but but my dad, my dad, who was fine when I came out. Now, this is surprising, given all the lovely things I've said about him being left-wing and that, but he was also old-school Catholic, as I said. I didn't expect him to be fine. I literally, because he was also sometimes... What age were you when you came out? Uh, I told him 
to his face when I was 20, but I'd started telling other people from about 16, 17. Had you been agonising about telling him? Yeah, I, I fully expected to be at the least slapped around the face. Don't you think this is a this seems to me to be a common thread though that when people actually speak to their parents about yes. being gay, um, their parents are like, "I don't care." I say to young people all the time, "Do not sit them down. Do not tell them I've got something to tell you. Don't make it out." You know, I've I've had to come out about having cancer twice. I've had to sit people down and say, "I've got something to tell you," and it's been awful. Don't make it a bad thing. Tell them a lovely thing. Tell them you're happy. Tell them you met someone nice. Which you know. is why, but but then, so why do you think the, the dread always exists? Well, I, well, I don't understand I mean, this, that. This was 19... No, but it still exists now. Yeah, it does, it does. And that's because we still live in a culture where we don't talk about it. Like, it's ordinary. You know, it's, it's still a thing. At the very least, it's a thing to be gay, let alone, let alone unusual but or But it's difficult. not a thing to your parents, is it? Uh, as it turned out, it wasn't to mine. However, it was to my wife's parents. Her father wouldn't meet me for nine and a half years. I mean, and you know, and they were ostensibly liberal and middle class, and my family were the ones who weren't going to be. But to get back to the, the thing about um, education, my dad was fine when I came out. In fact, his very words were, oh, well, that doesn't change my relationship with you, does it? Now, I promise you, I promise you, Charlie, my dad had never said the word relationship before in his life. Not to me, anyway. He'd never said it. But... When I told him, when I finished my degree, which was a very bad degree in English literature because all I did was do plays the whole time. When I finished my degree and I said, I've got a job as an actor, which I had. I had, an, I had a year-long contract. I mean, it's freelance, but a year-long contract. And he was gutted. Because to him, yeah, because to him, see, really good face. Not so great for a podcast, but really good face of really. I'm not meant to speak all the time on the podcast. That's why, that's why no, no, I no, communicate no, but, in but, faces. But, that, but that's a marvellous face. And I want people to know that you're doing really good faces. Um, because to him, having a degree was going to help me get a job for life. I was, I was, I was clever. I would got the education that none of the rest of them had been allowed for various reasons, but mostly money. And, mostly, and also opportunity, partly because New, in New Zealand, the opportunity that I had coming, growing up in my small town, which was multicultural and had loads of opportunities, even though it was poor, was much more than I would have had in the council estate in Woolwich. Right. There was just a lot more going for us. And then moving to New Zealand when I was five years old did make a huge difference around that. I, I genuinely don't know if we'd have stayed in South East London if I could have achieved the same things. Maybe not as soon. But anyway, he thought you go to the university so you can become a teacher or a lawyer, yes. right? So you can just be fundamentally yeah, yeah. financially secure. Yes. yes. And he did. This was a man who was a labourer his whole life, other than four and a half years as a prisoner of war. Mm. He, and, and he wasn't just a labourer, he was a boilerman by the time he was older. And that meant that he did night shift, or he did all shifts, but he preferred night shift. On night shift, if nothing went wrong, wrong with the boiler, he came home having read a book from the library at night. Ah, I was going to ask. Yeah. Okay, uh, the, the, such an autodidact. So was my mum, but but he he, he didn't bring up seven kids because it was then she did more of that. So he had a little more time, often while working. However, if the boiler went wrong, this was a big timber mill. Those boilermen climbed inside the boiler and fixed it. My dad came home taking salt tablets because he'd lost a stone and a half in weight overnight and covered in burns. When, when he died in his coffin, you know how burn scars go smooth? Yes. 
I remember stroking his hands because his hands were smooth because they were covered in burn scars. Amazing. That's going to make me cry. But I, I remember, and that was really him to me, this colossal, five foot eight, violent, alcoholic, hilarious, sarcastic, all the good things, all the bad things all rolled up into one, and he died when I was 25, so I didn't even really get to be friends with him as a grown-up. So although you were initially going to be an actress and yeah. actually did acting yeah, yeah. and stand-up, yeah. yeah. it, was it almost a given that you were going to write books, do you think, at one point? Whether they were published or not yeah, probably another matter. I, I but... think it was a given I was going to write. When I was about nine years old, I started writing poetry, and still no one sees my poetry, and I don't do it very often. Um, and uh, and I have been mistaken for Carol Ann, and it's very funny. And um, you know, there's me, there's Car there's Carol Ann Duffy, and there's Maureen Duffy, who was who, who was the woman that we have to thank for PLR, public lending right, for all the writers, and a brilliant writer in her own right. And we're all gay. And Maureen was the first out on television British lesbian. Right. And so okay. and so sometimes people think that I must be related to one or the other of them. Yes. But you, you've got their yeah. genes yeah, yeah, in yeah. some ways. Uh, there's a gay Duffy writing thing. It's um, in the air. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, it, but in fact, not, the three of us have never been in the same room. And I think that's good because it might explode if we Yes, it, it, it sounds like it too might. Too many worlds might come together. The most wonderful um, book that I read this year um, by John Boyne, who wrote, I think he, he wrote The Boy in the Striped Pajamas. Oh, but yeah, this yeah. is called... He writes adult books yes. as well. This is called Something Something, Who is Cyril Avery? And it's yeah. about um, growing up in Ireland and repression oh, for wow. a gay man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it's, I re highly recommend it. I'll oh, try and find I'll out what it's called. Yeah, it sounds fantastic. Um, but so, so you've, you started acting and then yep. you've produced this unbelievable <laughs> body of work, which has yeah. done incredibly well. Thank you. And you carry on doing it, but I... that's not far and away from all you do. No, it's not. And, and partly it's not because I don't think I have a very big attention span for any one thing. I mean, and maybe that's to do with being the youngest of seven as well, you know. I love new things. And when I wrote my first novel, I'd been working with an impro company, or improv, as the younger people say these days, like Americans do. But in that impro company, was Patrick Marber, the playwright and director and screenwriter, right? I was at university with Oh, him. really? Yeah. Oh, how funny. Yeah. Okay, so Patrick was in that company. Yeah. Jake Arnott was in that company. We taught ourselves how to write. And in fact, the other five people in that company were all writers Patrick's as well. Patrick's the funniest actor I've oh, ever seen. Yeah, Patrick, Patrick's a very good well, a very good improviser when he's having a good day. But you know, Patrick, he can be very dour. So on a bad day, he's not happy on stage. Um, in fact, I did an Avon course. He was our guest a couple of years ago with maybe Patrick Gale, I can't remember. Anyway, um, no, uh, but we had an impro company. We never officially disbanded, we still very occasionally get together. And we taught ourselves how to write by improvising a play every Sunday night for about five years. And I had already been- How writing. old were you when this was happening? I came back to London when I was 23. That was 1986. In 87, I did my first impro classes at the Donmar Warehouse, just and when Nika Burns was first there. Um, now running most of the West End, or well, half of it. Um, the half that Sonia Friedman's not running. Um, and then I met the people who, you know how it takes you a while to find your people? Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. we, think that we think that we might like these ones, but they turn out not to be our people. I think university often does that. Yeah, people. well it had for me in New Zealand, but it then I came, I came back here. So the people who I found in New Zealand, actually I have stayed in touch with quite a few old high school friends as well, but I very cleverly put them in touch with my university friends before I left, and they've all become mates. 
So when I go back to New Zealand, all of my people are all joined up. But it took me about 18 months when I came back to London as an adult to find my people. And I found my people through stand-up and impro. Right. And, and I started doing stand-up because I couldn't get any acting work because I talked like a New Zealander. Even though I'm quite good at accents, they still thought I was going to go home and you know leave in the middle of a job. And who knows, maybe I won't. Um, but then, uh, although I was just back in New Zealand and they all think I talk like a posh English person. So, you know, who knows? Um, after 30 years. And then I found improv. And, and finding it, your people gives you the confidence to do totally. what you really want but to it, do, it? Doesn't it also it? changed my life because improv says say yes to everything. Impro says say yes to your stupidest ideas because there's magic in it, whether, you, whether it's brilliant or whether it fails. It might go somewhere. Yes, because there's always magic in mistakes. You know, there's genuine magic in mistakes. Yes, and, and actually life is best lived like that totally, anyway. Totally, because, because we can second guess everything, but we're never going to know, right? Absolutely. Never, I... I mean, you know, God knows you know with your seven, six kids and me growing up with one of seven, you know, you cannot ever plan for anything. In well, life. I think I know that particularly with career. Yeah. I think that, you know, you just don't know where <laughs> no. things are, you know, and if you're open to ideas, yes. odd doors open up totally. and you go through them and... And you begin to kind of narrow down and then you yeah. take a complete right turn. Well, you turn. accidentally open a door. I didn't know that my first book was a book. My first novel, I didn't even know it was a crime novel because I hadn't read many crime novels at the time. And I thought I was writing a novel about a relationship breaking up. But I put an amateur detective in it because there was also a, a crime thread in it and they sold it as a crime novel. Well, I didn't know that, but I start, I remember really clearly starting to write... And I had tried to write a couple of novels before, and it turns out I do most of my work in the edit. I do I write quite fast a first draft, and I do tons of work. I mean, London Lies Beneath, the, the book that's out in paperback now, it took me four years. I did I do ma in fact, I started it here at the library. So you do more than one book at a time? Yeah, sometimes, or, yeah. or a bit of a script or something, or certainly other short stories. Things are ongoing depending on yeah. That, that, I mean, I'm not a writer, but I mean, you've, you've, I, I, I wrote down the, yesterday, mm -hmm. um, you've done, <laughs> I mean, how many short stories? Well, I think it's over 65, but I can't actually remember either. And 10 plays? Well, 10 actual plays that I've written before that I've devised with companies. So and, and 15 novels. Totally, and 15 novels. As well yeah. as all the other things. So just, just, I mean, I'm sure you're really bored of this, yeah. but as a question, but Tell me about how you write. Huh. I mean, so what, what does a, a day that you are writing involve, particularly if you're writing two or three different things sure. or um, an article? Or... Well, I think what's really important, given that we don't know who's going to listen to this, is that I explain that in all of this time of writing, my first novel came out in 1994, which means I started writing it in 1992, at which time I was still being a stand-up, being an improviser and very occasionally still cleaning houses for rich people. I totally recommend cleaning houses for rich people as a job. <laughs> why, why? Because it makes you want to no, be successful and get out? No, no, no. Particularly if you want to be a writer. Well, oh. at, at university, because I'm a terrible waitress, I cannot be polite to rude people. I discovered that very quickly. I was an awful waitress. Um, and people are so grateful when you clean their house. And they always think it takes longer than it does. And I also used to iron for people. And it, <laughs> I, I, can iron, I can iron that shirt for you in less than three minutes. I did minutes. this today. It, you've done it beautifully. Yeah, thank you. But um, it doesn't, it really, when you get, when you get practice, it doesn't take very long. And people are grateful. It took me ages, yeah. Yeah, you, 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 you do their house nicely. They come home from work and it's done. You've picked up your cash and gone. 
And while you're there, without even looking in their drawers, you have seen into someone else's life. So as a person who is now a novelist, looking into all of those different lives, seeing how other people live, merely by dusting what's on their shelves. Do you still, so you still draw on those stories? Probably not, but I still draw on that idea of houses, other people's homes to me are like dolls' houses. But you write at home. You write in your own I home. I do. I do write in my own home. And, um, but, but so, so anyway, the point is, in all of that time, I think I've once had two weeks where all I did was be a writer. Right. Okay. Because that's I think a lot of people think that to be so. Sometimes I'll teach a writing workshop. And in fact, I talk in twenty-four about, years 24 or twenty-seven years, yeah, years yeah, yeah, yeah. or whatever. Yeah, yeah. All that time, I taught a writing workshop recently where a woman said, "I'm sixty-eight. I've just retired. I've wanted to write all my life, and I finally got the time to write, and I'm not doing it." And I went, "No, of course you're not doing it. You put too much pressure on yourself." Dostoevsky, Chekhov, and Trollope all had full-time jobs, all of them, and. They also had wives. However, Beryl Bainbridge, her husband left her when she had, I think, three small kids. She famously talks about getting up at five, wrote about getting up at 5.30 in the morning before the kids got up at 6.30 so she could write. I think it is actually really useful to not have screeds of time. I don't write any less now that I'm also doing loads of other things with fan palaces, right? I don't do any less. So you might, as it were, uh, tomorrow morning, as it were, in normal mm-hmm. life, write for a couple of hours, go out and do something completely I different, might. then not write for another three days yes, and then and, write for half a day. and that's painful. I prefer to write 500 words a day if I can manage it, at least five or six days a week. I prefer to have some rhythm going. Um, and with the first, that's to get a first draft done. And some days, if I've got all the time in the world, I can write 1,500 or 2,000 words. But if I can get... Fi- so today on the train on the way here... Um, train rides, what, two and a quarter hours? I wrote 700 words. It's first draft. It's not 700 great words. I'll make them better later. But the narrative's there. But they're there. And that thing about being, risking making mistakes, I don't, I'm at the, nearly at the end of the book and I don't quite know how to get there. And so I thought, okay, well, what I'm just going to do is I'm just going to write the dialogue of the thing that reveals the thing that matters. And then it might come. Yeah, and then I'll work it out and then I'll fill that other bit in. And I've been agonising about this for about three days, and I'm a grown-up writer, Charlie, and this is my 16th novel, and I, and I would have told any writer friend, oh, you know, just jump to the next bit, you'll work it out. But could I tell myself that for the past three days? Hell no. So you had, as it were, the conversation with the characters. Uh-huh. And I'd let them just talk. So all I did was I typed really fast what they're saying, and that was 700 words. Well, when I go back and I write in what else is happening and how they're feeling and what it looks like, and then I work out how to get from point A to point B at this point, that'll be 1,500 words and I'll have, you know, got even closer to finishing the book. Do you, do you, so do you map out the, the story? Very, I mean, because I know some writers put kind of huge yeah, walls of... Very little. I, my, my writing changed about... Uh, the Room of Lost Things came out five or six or eight years ago. Eight years ago, maybe. With The Room of Lost Things, I knew I had lots of characters and it's set where I live in southeast London, set in Loughborough Junction, where your Caroline used to live around the corner, um, opposite my local pub. Um, it's, it's set in a particularly mixed demographic part of southeast London, which I am very happy to have lived for 20 years and I think doesn't often get talked about. It's black and it's white and it's Asian and it's Polish and it's Portuguese and it's middle class and it's very poor and it's all the things. And you don't always know if the black person or the Asian person or the Portuguese person or the Portuguese person or, 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 the, or the Polish person or the white person 
is the one who's white, who's, who's working class, white working class, or it if works. they're white middle class. That, that's an amazing know, thing or, about London. Yeah, or if they're black middle class and they're just not getting talked about in our media at the moment, you know, because everyone doesn't doesn't talk about the, the British black middle class, partly because there's, there's not a large enough demographic yet. Anyway, point is, I wanted to write about that area, but it meant that I needed to have a lot of characters in it. And I got a whiteboard. And I discovered something really exciting, that for me, when I write something down on pen and paper or pencil and paper, I take it too seriously and it feels like I'm committing to it. Whereas when I write on a whiteboard, actually it feels much freer and I can rub it out and go, oh no, that doesn't work, I'll do something How else. How interesting. And it was amazingly yes. interesting. I didn't know it, that was my I, I totally understand it because I think that, you know, the, the, the place in which you write notes is incredibly yes. important. And I didn't know that was my truth. And it was only when, I, and I, it was only a little one, you know, like the, the tiny sort of two foot by one foot one from, from Ryman's. Now I have a huge one. I mean, it's mm, about, I think yeah. it's about five foot by four foot. And, it, and we actually got a builder to put up on the wall because it is an old Do you both use the same writing room? No. Because you're both writers. No, we are both writers. Shelley's a playwright. No, we bought a three bedroom house in Loughborough Junction at a time when no one else was wanting to buy there um, because we were trying to have kids. And we wanted to have a family and we thought that would be great. And then we didn't because I had my first cancer and, and that made me infertile and she miscarried with our baby father and didn't get pregnant again. So that was awful at the time. However, we do now have a lovely house in which two writers both have gorgeous offices. Absolutely. You have your own, you don't yeah, write in the no, same room. No, no. We have done, well, like everyone else with a small two three-bedroom house in South East London. We now have a lovely loft. Um, and, well, not everyone else, but, you know, quite a lot of people, certainly down my road. And, um, and when the loft was being done and her office was being done at the same time, because her office was the back room, you know, with the really low ceilings, really dingy, um, all, all of everything was in my office. And my office is the smaller room. All of it was in there. And I was recovering from my second cancer, having five surgeries that year. And there was one wow. moment, yeah, there was one moment when there was about five builders outside knocking through the stairs. And I know we're fortunate. I mean, you know, back to seven kids in a two bedroom, you know, of course I know we're fortunate. But I had only had my second surgery of those yes, five and, that and year. Yes, I mean, you know, and, it's yeah. how you feel. It's uh -huh. not whether and, you're fortunate in the and, scheme of things. No, no, no. But, you know, it is, a, it is useful to remember. It is. But, I mean, you know, comparing, uh, yeah, you yeah. know, these comparisons are of not course. necessarily no, valid because no, you no, feel no. how you feel. Exactly. So there I was. And I remember looking up from my desk. And, I, and there was, we'd literally given ourselves chair space and a desk. And everything else was full of stuff. Totally. You could, you could squeeze into the chair and you could sit and work. I remember looking up and because they were taking the ceiling down and these are old plaster and lathe Victorian houses and when you take it off it's grey, it's not white like modern plaster and I looked up and I realised the room was full of grey dust in the air and at the time having had my second breast mm. cancer and a reconstruction surgery which wasn't healed yet I thought I don't think it's healthy to be sitting here with dust literally swirling yeah, around just me. So I turned, yeah, stuff. I turned my computer off. I rang up my dear friends who'd said, you can come and stay in our house and recuperate, you know. They only live down the road in Streatham. And I said, please, can I come and stay for four days? And I picked up my laptop and I went. And uh, it was one of the more sensible things I've done. But um, no, so we don't work together. And but you, but you, it's, it, it seems to me, therefore, that you approach your writing 
in a way that someone, anyone who meets you would expect with the kind of unbelievable sort of fearlessness and energy <laughs> and, you, and, 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 and sort of verve and sparkle and you just kind of get it done. Yeah, I do get you're it done. Because you're, I, you know, I think this is, is, is there a kind of almost a badge of honour for the kind of, the sort of trials and the labours of writing a book that seems to be quite a common yeah. sort of agony and the... Yeah, you know, I mean, I, this, this goes back to my upbringing. Um, I mind when an artist of any sort says it's hard work. I work very hard at what I do. I really do work very hard. But, you know, that father who was a boilerman, who came home a stone and a half lighter mm. covered in small burns, that was hard work. Yes, but you take, you actually live that approach yeah, rather yeah, yeah. than just saying No, I, no, no I, I do yeah. live that approach. I approach it as a business. So I write what I love, which is a story I need to tell. And I write the next story because it's the next story in my head and I can't stop myself. As it turns out, it is easier for my publishers to, tell a, to sell this crime novel than it is this literary novel set in 1912 about some kids that no one's ever heard of. And you've got to pay the bills. Yeah, totally. Yes. And, I've, and they've got to pay the bills as well. Yes, of course. No, so, no I mean, everyone's yeah. got to pay so the bills. I understand so, that. So when, yeah. I, when I speak to writers, I, I mean, I did this, I was in, at the Felix Stowe Book Festival just yesterday, and there was a couple of new writers in the room, and they said, yes, but, but what about, you know, publishing just wants this, that, and the other. I went, yeah, good on it. Because when publishing sells Mark Billingham or Val McDermott's you know, new crime bestseller, they also pay for the money they make for my very lovely literary novel. And hopefully my crime novel can do, you know, can make a bit more money. Yes, and don't, and don't kid yourself, they're a charity. And that, absolutely. And I said, and these people looked a bit askance at me, and I said, look, if your piece of art is so beautiful that you don't want anyone else to suggest it'll be better for the market if you do this, or this might work better, or that might work better, that's great. Now put it in your top drawer and leave it. Or publish it yourself. Mm. Do, do either of those two things. But if you want to be published by mainstream publishing in the world and you want the respect that that gives and you want the nice review and the paper or whatever, or the horrible review sometimes, but if you want that, acknowledge it's a business. Acknowledge that those people have gone into it, not just to make money, they've got to do it because they care about writing too, but it's a business and, and be part of that. You know, so I love working with yes, writers. Yes. I love working with publishers. I love being edited. I, I care about the edit enormously. You obviously have an editor or editors that you like. I have. I've been very fortunate. I've had three different editors. In... I can imagine it can be pretty galling yeah, if well, you don't like the editor. It's, I'm sure it's all... Oh, I think it's always galling. I think, I think it's always heartbreaking when they don't go, oh, my God, you're amazing. This yeah. is the best piece of work I've ever seen. Nothing wrong um, with it at all. Yeah, nothing wrong Not at all. Typo. I'm going to publish it next week. Yeah. I'm, going yeah. to just, I'm just going to send it off right now. And by the way, it's going to be huge. Huge. I'm going to make sure. No, of course, every. Um, I never give people something until I think it's done. Only they they come to it. I mean, and I say this as someone who's directed theatre as well. For me, part of what the director does is helps the actors understand what the audience are seeing. For me, part of what the editor does is it helps me as the writer understand what the reader's reading. You know that my editors, I've been very lucky, have all been very supportive of me as a writer but also really aware of the, the huge range of people who will be reading me. And the need for your novels to succeed. Absolutely, which and is, for them to be Which is why you there. have a publisher. Aha, uh -huh, exactly. So, um, as you can hear, Stella is an absolute whirlwind of ideas and energy, and sometimes um, I felt that we were going to talk all night, but she's so engaging, so interesting. Um, 
that I would have been happy to do that. One of the things that she hasn't mentioned so far, and in fact that I forgot to talk about uh, with her, is that she's actually a Buddhist. But she does say that she's discovered a form of Buddhism that allows her to eat meat and drink. And um, later in the evening, when we had finished this podcast, we had dinner, and she did say the next day that she felt terrific because she drank her body weight in alcohol that night. Uh, so I really like the idea of that form of Buddhism. Anyway, um, back to the chat. What I really want to move on to is to talk about the fun palaces. <laughs> yeah. Brilliant. Fun. Explain the fun palaces because I've known about them for a few years, and, yep. and they're an it's an incredibly inspiring organisation. Mm. But I never think that the name and what they actually do necessarily yeah, yeah. connects up yes. terribly well. So. Tell me what they are. <laughs> so what a fun palace shows itself as in actuality is we call it a campaign for cultural democracy. It's cultural democracy being culture led by and for the people rather than the instrumentalist sort of democratisation of culture. They're not the same thing. Not being an academic, I only discovered that one two years ago. But anyway, democratisation of culture is a Rethian model or a 1930s, 40s, I'm going to, could even be a Gladstonian model in some ways. We know what is good for the people, let us give to the people, but it's decided by an elite, for want of a much so, nice, a much more uh, all-encompassing word. Holland Park or uh -huh, Exactly. And, yeah. and, and great stuff, but it's, this is what's good so we want it. We want everyone yes. to have access to it. But you are Whereas, dealing with the reverse. Yes, cultural democracy says everyone's got culture. Every community has culture within it. Everybody can create. Everyone is creative if we give them the opportunity. I mean, the thing I often do when I talk about this is I say, great, so who in the room thinks that, that Mozart was a genius? And a good two-thirds of the people will put up their, their hand. And I'll say, leave your hand up, because, you know, two-thirds of the world would agree with you. Now... Keep your hand up if your dad made you a scale model violin when you were three. And of course all the ha hands go down. And keep your hand up if your dad was the best violin teacher in Salzburg at the time. Because the truth is, yes of course Mozart's Mozart, but we don't know if he's a genius or not because we, we're not giving every three-year-old a scale model violin and living in-house the best violin teacher possible. Back to opportunity, back to education. So. Fun Palaces, our modern incarnation of it, says that everybody is creative. Let's give everyone the opportunity to share in their own community how creative they are. Now, that might be, I don't know, the second best opera singer in the country who happens to live in this village. It might be the most amazing, because we perceive science as being part of culture, physics professor, you know, who, who's running some great, amazing stuff at Cambridge doing something brilliant. It might be them, or it might just be that amateur astronomer who's always cared about things, or it might be the, you know, the poet or the, the watercolour group, or the person who's a really fantastic knitter who doesn't think that she understands anything to do with digital at all, that we can explain to her that the knitting patterns are digital. One plane, one pearl is a code. And that actually this 75-year-old woman who thinks she's not creative and he's doing some really tricky stuff in cable. Yes. You know, is very creative. So, in the beginning, in a, the early 60s, Joan Littlewood, the theatre director, Cedric Price, the architect, came together. He was a good 20 years younger than her. She was in her 50s by then. And wanted to make one fun palace. 
a building in the East End of London. Joan had seen that her plays were doing well and the people from the East End weren't going. They were going to Stratford East, but they weren't going up to the West End. Because like my family, they didn't think those buildings were for them. And if they did, you know, it was special and you dressed up. Mm. And, you know, mm. they'd, they wouldn't dream of turning, you know, it not being a big deal. And maybe they went uptown to the theatre once a year for a panto probably, or maybe the ballet, but it was a treat. They weren't going regularly like they did to Theatre Royal Stratford East. And jo, Joan thought, well, or she thought in the 60s, she thought that um, the working class were going to have so much leisure time because of all the new technology. They keep getting promised this, don't they? Um, we all do. <laughs> everyone's telling us we're going to have more leisure time. It's, we've always been promised it. Um, she thought that everyone given access to hands-on participation could grow and learn. So... The Fun Palace term, which admittedly I have, you know, we have often heard people say, I don't get it. So one is learning is fun. That's what she wanted to be able to say. And bear in mind, this is 1960s and it's 1960s kind of schools. So she was saying learning can be fun and learning can be fun for grown-ups as well. So it's not just about saying engagement is for children and for young people. And a lot of our resources, I mean, God knows we're cutting far too many in schools around culture. But even now, we're still saying, oh, we've got to get the kids in, we've got to get the kids in. Well, if the kids' mum and dad or grandparents or whoever they live with don't also go to a museum, then that kid's going to get one museum visit in their school life. And if that one museum visit isn't a good one, or the kid's having a bad day, or they were getting bullied that day... They might never go to a museum again. They might never go again. Yeah. So actually, the people we've got to support are the communities and the families. So they had this amazing idea. And I mean, the board was astonishing. Yehudi Menuhin, Buckminster Fuller were on that board. I mean, they were an incredible board. Wow. Yeah, I know, right? And they tried for 10 years to make the Fun Palace very strongly from 65 to 75. In this one building? In this, in this one area in the east of, east of London, in the kind of where the Lee Valley Estate is now, with some of which crosses over with the Olympic Park. And, um, of course, it never happened, in 19, not least because Cedric Price was such an absurd and avant-garde architect that in, well, in the end, Richard Rogers has said that he based his design for the Pompidou Centre on some of Cedric Price's designs for the Fun Palace. But in 65, it was going to cost five million. In 65. And in 75, it was going to cost 15 million. So, of course, it never happened. But one of the things that... One but it was of the, almost too grand a notion. It was notion. way too grand a notion, except that it was going to be free. And they were talking about digital access at a time when it didn't even exist. I mean, they were talking about having a live feed from the zoo for people who had never seen the monkeys at the zoo because they couldn't afford to go. They were talking about showing the football live because if you got the people in to see the football, maybe they'd stay on to see those opera singers afterwards. And the idea Incredible. was, I know, phenomenal. You stick it all in the same building, all in the same space. And of course, if it's Cedric Got the Price, hairs on my arm oh, standing I know, exactly, up. I had no right? idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. If you stick it all in the same place and Cedric Price has designed it, you've got these hydraulic walls going up and down. So, so you can have a, a silent room for the football so it doesn't disturb this. But the big key is if you have an orchestra or a band, I mean, you know, it could have been the Beatles, it could have been the, the Philharmonic, it could have been the local skiffle band, it didn't matter to them. If you have a band on stage, when they finish, they get off stage and they say, would you like to try playing my instrument? So instead of us always dividing it, and I say this as somebody who, uh, you know, came from theatre before I was a writer, well, I was writing for theatre, but... Instead of saying, we will, sit, we will make the people sit in the stalls and shut up, and applaud us, every actor knows rehearsals are the best part. 
Every actor knows being part of the company is the best part. Every musician says, no, you need to hear what it sounds like from inside the orchestra. We give people a chance to feel like what, it's, what it is like inside. So, so you're now, you picked up this with yep. three or four other yep, three colleagues. Yep, literally three or four other and, colleagues. And, and you, you run Fun Palaces on a, a, an occasional basis? <laughs> yeah, well... Just in, in, not in a grandiose venue no, like not the Pompidou no. Centre, but... So, so what we said was, so in, in 2013... I was at, there's an annual event called Devoted and Disgruntled, and it's um, been going for 12, 13 years now. And it's run by Improbable Theatre, who I work with sometimes as a performer and know very well and occasionally have been a facilitator. And it's an event in open space, which means anyone can call a session. So instead of setting an agenda beforehand, we set the agenda. 300 people turn up who are passionate about theatre, devoted to and disgruntled with. How can we make it better? I've worked in theatre for 30 years or five years or two years or 50 years sometimes. And I don't like where it is. I don't like where it is and I'm still devoted to it. How can we make it better? So I called a session because I'd been directing a large ensemble cast of about, well, sometimes 30 people between 17 and 70. And I needed to know more about ensemble work. And Jane Littlewood did a lot of ensemble work in her time. So I've been reading her book and I thought, hmm. It's going to be her centenary in October 2014. No one's talking about that. And obviously, it's also going to be the centenary of the First World War and oh, what a lovely war and all of that. I said, well, why don't we do something for it? So I called a session and I I promise you, I genuinely thought, bear in mind, I was about to be. It was the end of January. I turned 50 at the beginning of March. Five weeks later, I was about to turn 50. I called a session that said, would anyone like to do something to celebrate Joan Littlewood's centenary in October 2014? I had looked at my notes. 16 people came to that session out of about 300. It lasted for 45 minutes. By the end of it, several of us had gone, oh, the Fun Palace was a lovely idea, didn't happen. Well, we could do that. We could do that anywhere. We could do it in a town hall. You could do it in an empty theatre. Let's just do that. We'll just tell people they can make a Fun Palace if they want. Well, what I wasn't prepared for, not having been a producer at the time, well, what I wasn't prepared for having been an artist all the time was everyone saying yes to me. I have never in my life done something where everyone says yes. And you hadn't even really no, we didn't, we considered didn't, no, this. No, no, we didn't know what it was. I tweeted it, and I have to say, Twitter has been such a friend to Fun Palaces because people who weren't artists or scientists, and this is really core as well, it was bringing arts and science, and of course they got turned down in the 60s. The idea of bringing arts and sciences together was so ahead of its time. You know, we talk about that all the time now. But then it was just phenomenal. Yes. Um, so, anyway, um, oh, you asked about the reason why it's called the Fun Palace. No, called... no, I mean, I, I, I now understand well, the Fun Palace. Fun, fun pa- no, but also Palace because of the People's Palaces. Yes. You know, the, the original working class, the People's Palaces, the music hall, it was yes. for them. So it, it makes perfect sense. When yes, you know. I mean, it just, it just I, all I said to begin with, I think it, yeah, it yeah. requires explanation. Yeah, it because does, if you yeah. say Stella Duffy does these things called fun palaces sure, to someone who yeah. doesn't know, no, exactly. it, doesn't, it isn't immediately and obvious I, I, what I, it is. These days when you Google it, we come up everywhere, but I promise yes. you in the first years, uh, it was um, massage parlours uh, all over the place called the fun palace. So, uh, you know, very different. What, what I say to explain it is I say, ideally it's community-led, but sometimes it's led by a library, sometimes it's led by a theatre, sometimes it's led by a science group. Um, ideally, they've got the people from the community, the local community. It's hyper-local. It's a jumble sale, a free jumble sale for arts and science and craft and tech and digital and sometimes sport. And we say, 
at any point, try and look at it from another angle. So if you've got your watercolor group, have them in, have them showing how they do it. They can, they can exhibit some things if they want, but better than that, it's hands-on. It's, have you ever tried playing with watercolors? Right, yes. Um, but more than that, it's let get the people to have a go, but it's led by the people. So it might be led by your aunt, who's a really good watercolorist, but she's not going to be someone who's exhibited at the RA. Or it might be someone who has. They just happen to live down and your street. And people turn up and adults and, and children adults come and, children, and they and have they, a go at watercolour painting go. or, or and, and at astronomy. The same, yes, or, and at the same time, on the other side of the room, is somebody doing a pretty difficult... Um, for example, we had a bunch of national rail engineers take part in the Bedford Fun Palace. I think one of them is the husband of one of the women who decided she wanted to organise it. And they did bridge building, but with Meccano and Scalectrics. And they talked about how they build bridges, because how they build bridges needs to understand the weight of the train. It needs to understand what speed does to what weight ha- to what happens with weight. And I'm beginning to say these things and thinking it's far too hard physics for me, but they know. And they brought all this stuff for people to play with. And you know, not every kid does have Lego in Britain. No, but it's not just for and, kids, is it? No, exactly. I mean, it's, it's... But, but not every kid has that, which means that not every adult has it. And you know, people often say that they join in things because their kids have got them, but not every adult gets to play either. So at a fun Or palace, also show their enthusiasm exactly. to other people, yeah, which yeah. is an incredibly totally. wonderful thing to be able to so do. So one of the really... So there's a couple of gorgeous things that happened last year. One is that um, at Tameside in Oldham, they worked with an ex-service people's group. And they are, um, I think, mostly blokes, but I could be wrong. My assumption is they are. Um, Some with PTSD, some just trying to integrate better with the community. And so as a way to integrate better with the community, they took on running some of the fun palace. And of course these guys know how to build rockets. So they built brilliant rockets with with water and fizzy bottles. And they they built, um, they, they they had got a local building firm in who built a wall. And they literally just built a wall. It was bricklaying. Well, bricklaying's art, bricklaying's science, bricklaying's architecture and design, it's everything. But the faces of the people who are being taught to do bricklaying... And doing it well, they couldn't uh, yeah. believe... Yes. And they're grown-ups and they're kids. It's just phenomenal. So how many um, events do you expect to have <sighs> in, in, in well, a year now? last year... So we perceive our, as, as a group, just the four of us, doing it part-time because, you know, we're all doing other jobs as well. Um... We call it a campaign for cultural democracy, and we we lobby for more access to to the means of pro- the means of production of arts and culture and science, not just the the product of it. So we do that year round, but every year we have an annual weekend at the beginning of October. And last year there were two hundred and ninety two fun palaces, led by four thousand eight hundred local people, and one hundred and twenty four thousand people took part. And our statistics, though, are phenomenal because of those 4,800 people who were leading, um, the index of multiple deprivation divides Britain up into the ones of the poorest and the tens of the richest. Of the people who were leading, 13% were ones. I might cry again. 16% are twos and threes. The index of multiple deprivation is not just how poor you are, but it's how likely are you to ever get a job where you live. Is there any public transport that can get you to where you might get a job? And what are your schools like? It's all of those things. So it's things. really, really yeah. empowering people so who almost are. half. So I think I think what's that? Sixteen, sixteen. It's 40, 45 percent 
of the people running fun palaces are the third poorest people in Britain. Amazing. It's phenomenal. It it's is phenomenal. absolutely fantastic. And it's partly, I think, because we're saying, yes, come in. Yes, do what you want. Yes, we'll support you. You know, we, we print posters and leaflets for people so they don't have to do that themselves. Yes. Our website allows them to sign up so they don't need a website. Hannah in our office, who's this amazing woman, she feels young to me, she's in her 30s, um, will talk to somebody for two hours who's never uploaded a photo before and talk them through how to do it. So we're, we're sharing digital literacy as well. And these people are running amazing things, really amazing things, but it's by them, for them. And that's the key, I think. And people are telling us they're getting a lot out of it. And next week I'm going to the local government authorities um, annual conference and people respond. The, the, the stats on, on what it's done to them in their community and the reason I think that local governments really get excited by it is because bear in mind the makers are the people who are probably already active. Maybe they're already, mm, you know, they mm. might be the poorest, but they're still doing stuff. Mm. You know, maybe they're already running their estates residence association. You know, they're like the amazing people we've seen stepping up at Grenfell Tower, those people. Um, and, and they're saying they're discovering more resources in their community than they thought they had. Just before we end though, yeah. what, have you got any recommendations for books you've loved this year or piece of music that oh, uh, you're God. listening to a lot at the you moment? You know what? What I do every year, in January on Facebook, I ask all my friends who are much better at music than I am to recommend any good running music. And, um, and, they, and I'm, I happen to be fortunate enough to be Facebook friends with Lauren Laverne, who, of course, knows all the music oh, in the world. I, I, hope, and, I, know, I hope I know what she's recommended and, uh, to you. But. Oh, well, no, I totally recommend Lauren Laverne's um, uh, playlist, actually, because she does an end-of-the-year playlist. So there's a band called... Um, I'm going to say I'm going to get this wrong now. First Aid, or that's the album. First Aid Kit. First Aid Kit. They're fantastic. Master yeah. Contender, great song. I am in love with Father wonderful. John. I'm with Father John, John Misty. Misty. He's yeah. Like, yeah, he's wonderful. Uh, yes, there's and he's a very cool. Brilliant band called Xylaru. X Y L A R O O. That was from Lauren Laverne's okay, playlist. Okay, I don't know that. Okay. They are. I think. I hope I'm not getting this wrong because it would be very bad for a person from the Pacific to get this wrong. But I think they're Papua New Guinean and maybe British. They're sisters, and they've got fantastic voices. So my recommendation yes. for running is by um, almost my favourite band called LCD Sound System. I don't know. And they have done, and I was looking this up because I have to get the actual um, precise details of the title. It's called 4533, and it's 45 minutes and 33 no, um, really? seconds of running music. Really? That was actually originally, and don't let this put you off, but commissioned for Nike and then later yeah. released more widely. But that's, that's fantastic. Great. That's fantastic. Yeah. That's so, perfect length. That's as running well. music. Well, if you if you're fit. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, I, I, I walked I walked to yeah, him up and called out. Yeah. 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 Okay, wonderful. Thank you oh, thank so you. much. Thank you. Amazing. Well, thank you very much to Stella. I mean, I really do feel that that was the most inspiring and um, engaging talk, and I really enjoyed it. And I really, really hope that you did too. Stella's latest novel, her 15th, I mean, how do you do that, is The Hidden Room, which came out on the 6th of July. I've bought it, I haven't yet read it, but I will do. I think she's a wonderful writer. She also mentioned during the talk um, the band Xylaro. I think that's how you pronounce it. Xylaro, perhaps. It's X Y L A R O O. 
and the song that she mentioned was Sunshine. Um, interesting enough, I haven't listened to the B-side, but the B-side of the single is I Bet You Look Good on the Dance Floor, so that might be worth checking out. Anyway, thank you very much to you for listening. Thank you, thank you. Thanks to my friend Jim Friend for editing, and thank you to the absolutely amazing Stella Duffy for speaking to me. Bye! Bye!